The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Money in Your Life, the radio program that gives you the insight and motivation to be more successful with all aspects of your personal finances. Your hosts are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Today's program will feature experts and intriguing ideas that will show you how money is actually operating in your life. Now, here are Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. Hello. You have money in your life weekly show that explores the influence of money in your life. I'm Ann Hutchins. And I'm Brian Farr. So, Brian, the other day I saw a greeting card that said, whoever said money can't buy happiness didn't know where to shop. <laughs> that's, that's very good. <laughs> it's funny you should bring that up. Our guest today is a specialist on the topic of happiness. Uh, Dr. Robert Beeswas Diener is widely known as the Indiana Jones of positive psychology. His research on happiness has taken him to India, Israel, Greenland, and Kenya. Today we are ha- very happy to have uh, Robert Beeswas Diener's on Money in Your Life. Hello, Robert. Hi there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure to be here. Good, good. So let's just jump right into this topic around happiness, um, happiness and money in particular. We are now at the beginning of the uh, shopping season, the holiday shopping season, and shopping occurs year-round, but it seems like there's quite a bit more of it in the last two months of the year. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about why people's purchases don't yield the happiness they expect. Sure, sure. I, I think it's a, a great question. And in fact, I think it's one of the most intriguing questions. When people typically think about the relationship of money and happiness, um, they, the, the most common question they ask is, does money buy happiness? Um, and that seems to suggest that if I had a bunch of money, as if I stockpiled money, maybe or maybe not, that would make me happy. Um, but typically, people don't just stockpile their money. I mean, of course, they invest it, they save it. But more often than not, people spend it. Um, and you would think that with all this experience spending money, people would make better decisions that we would really understand kind of intuitively, practically, in an articulated way, how to spend money on purchases us happy. And I'm talking about discretionary purchases here. I'm not talking about, yeah. uh, you know, paying your power bill or, or buying food at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It turns mm-hmm. out that a wide range is that we're a little bit bad at, um, at knowing what's going to, to make us happy where we're spending our, our money's concerned. Um, there's at least three reasons for that. Do you have time for, mm-hmm. for at least one of those? Yeah, I was just going to say, let me tie into this research. Does it go, is it just for the United States or have you found this to be true in some of your other studies around the world? Um, 
One study we did examined people from more than 140 countries around the world, a demographically representative sample. So, uh, you know, a good sample representing urban and rural, young and old, men and women from all 140 countries. And we found that when people spend money on others, it pays back happiness dividends. So sort of around the world, there seems to be this tendency that what we call pro-social spending, when, when you buy a cup of coffee for someone, when you, uh, you know, help your niece by, by paying for her textbooks for school or, or what have you, that that doesn't only reward the, the recipient of the gift, but it also pays back to the giver as well in terms of happiness. Okay. All right. That's interesting. That's and interesting. Robert, when you say dividend, you mean a dividend – uh, you're referring to a feeling of happiness, an increase of feeling and happiness. Is that the, the happiness dividend? Yes, absolutely. That, um, you know, it, it doesn't exactly align with, with traditional economic thought. If you think, you know, giving money to others, you know, makes you poorer, it sort of reduces your utility, as they, they would say, um, but it makes you richer emotionally. Um, right. Just the, the feeling of connectedness it brings, the feeling of, of contributing, the feeling of living in accordance with your own values uh, pays off with, with some emotional resonance, a little, puts a little spring in your step. So one of the things that Brian and I have talked about is this increased idea of wealth. So what, what really what you're saying is that's, that you, have a, you may have a monetary decrease, but you have an increase in total wealth. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really great um, point. Um, when I think about wealth sort of in, in its most abstract sense, I think that wealth includes, of course, your finances, but it also includes sort of all your material resources, the, the community in which you lo- live, the, the infrastructure you have, the social support you have, the, the um, emotional sense of security you have. Um, and so even if there's a recession, for example, or your investments uh, diminish in their overall value, um, that's just one portion of your overall wealth, and you still might experience um, success in, in other areas. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that ties in so much with what we want to talk about over, the, over the, the weeks and months of our program, is that when people get over-focused on money, the other areas of their life – it's like they're not building up the assets. They're not building up their wealth in the other areas of their life. Well, it's it's really interesting. In in terms of um, that that question of you know just does having money buy happiness or not? Um, one of the things that people think is uh, you know if if I just make tons of money, I'll be able to buy a speedboat and fly first class and have all these creature comforts that will directly translate to my happiness. And it turns out that how people value their money, that is the relationship to their money, uh, makes a little bit of difference to the equation as well, such that people who are really materialistic, people who just highly value money and the acquisition of money, and that they value money over their social relationships, are among the least happy. Um, that's Ooh, not ouch. People, yeah, exactly. It, it, it turns <laughs> out that, that the pursuit of money um, it, as an end in itself, is toxic to happiness. So, if we draw back to what we to the question of purchasing decisions, it ties right into the values. If you make a purchasing decision that's not in line with your values, 
then there's a miss in the fulfillment of that happiness, right? It, well, that, that's certainly right. Anytime that you, you act in, in a way that runs counter to your values, it, it presents a psychological stumbling block for you that you then have to contend with, and, and typically you, you feel a bit stressed out. I'm, I'm glad you brought it back to those purchasing decisions because it's actually just more than, than the values. Um, one of the things that people do um, that I think is, is really fascinating is um, what's called the projection bias. That is, people purchase, make a purchasing decision when they're feeling psychologically in one state, but then they get the item home and they experience the item when they're feeling in a completely different state. So I'll just give you a quick example of this in, real, in the real world. You okay. go to the grocery store when you're, when you're hungry, um, and that hunger is an aroused physical and psychological state. You see a giant chocolate cake. It looks amazing. You purchase it. But then you snack on some almonds in the car on the way home. And suddenly when you get home, that cake looks a whole lot less desirable and appealing to you because you're no longer hungry. Your, your, your state has switched. Well, it turns out we do that with, with a wide range of, of types of things, mostly because there's a difference between wanting and liking of an item. So when we want an item, like when a child sees a toy on the, the shelf store or the, the, yeah, the shelf of the store, they want it really, really badly. And that wanting um, is associated with kind of an appetite in the brain that's really arousing. But then when you purchase the toy and you take it home, you don't have that highly aroused, hungry wanting anymore. And now you're just kind of making a determination, do I actually like this thing? How much do I like it? And we tend to like things slightly less than we want things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You used a phrase there, an appetite in the brain. That's, that does sound like wanting. It has a life of its own sometimes. Absolutely. And, and we do this, um, especially we, we kind of uh, end up in love with stuff. You know, there's a particular brand, a new pair of shoes, a nice pair of jeans, a leather jacket we want, a car. I mean, just across the board, um, you see things that seem highly desirable. You could almost just imagine yourself in, a, in an fMRI getting a brain scan and, and sort of watching your brain light up with, with a desire <laughs> for this item. Yep. Uh, and, it, and if you got to be stuck in the brain scan after you had the item, it, it might light up, but it wouldn't be quite as supernova. You know, it, it, the, the liking is generally a more tame experience than that, that deep hunger of wanting. The other thing that I'm wondering, I had this vision, uh, this picture in my mind when you were talking about a kid in a toy store, and I've seen kids in toy stores, I don't have kids, but I've seen kids in toy stores, and they, they get so excited about all those toys there, and in comparison to every, so they have to want one of them, right? And then they get it home, and it's really not such a big idea, because there aren't so many as there were in the store. That's a, a great, great catch. Um, that's what's called the distinction bias. And uh, I'll use a, kind of a classic example. When you go to, to buy a, a widescreen TV, you know, finally, you know, you, you, you're going to make this great purchase and you can imagine how it's going to look in your basement and all the, the sports you can watch on it or whatever it is. And in the store, you look at a 50-inch screen and a 52-inch screen, 
And you're comparing those two screens against one another, and the 52-inch screen looks a lot better because you're doing all this contrasting of, of those two items against one another. But what you don't realize is when you purchase it and you bring it home, none of that contrast will be there anymore. It will all disappear, and you now will only experience the one TV you bought in and of itself and, and be evaluating it and interacting with it based on its own merits uh, you know, alone. And that 52 inches won't seem like it's two inches larger than, than another screen. It will just seem like what it is. Um, and people sort of miss that. So they end up making purchases based on, on qualities that they really don't care about. So if one screen is brighter at the store and another is dimmer, you're more likely to opt for the brighter screen, not necessarily realizing that when you get it home, the brightness level um, isn't going to be something that you're going to be evaluating um, across the board, and, and it ends up not being all that important to you. Mm. I would think that this is something that really comes to play in a lot of uh, car purchases. So it's an important one because those are major purchases for most of us. Uh, when you're sitting there and looking at the blue during the uh, or compared to the yellow or this or that, and it's all that whole comparison thing. But once you're out driving on the freeway, you know it's just it's a car with an engine and four wheels. Yeah, that's interesting, and, and it's actually kind of an interesting example um, about car purchases in general because there is something built into to that transaction, and that's the test drive um, that does allow you a little bit to to experience the item, the car in this case, on its mm -hmm. own merits. Um, you know, and it, it would be kind of nice if you could go to the electronics store and take the TV or the computer home, you know, for a week and kind of test drive it. But of course, that that's not possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So let's – I'm curious now. Some people are more at risk of getting caught up in using their monies in ways that doesn't contribute to their happiness, and other people seem to be more successful at, at being wise with their money regarding this happiness thing. What might be some of the differences and how, how might our listeners learn to be more effective with their money and get more happiness dividends? Well, it's a good question, and, and I don't mind telling you it's a pretty big question, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a little bit like saying how could people be happier, you know, how could people just be smart with their money? Um, because the, there's, the, it's such a complex question um, in that people have all these stumbling blocks. One, one stumbling block is just impulsivity. Um, and impulsivity, and again, I'm, I'm not talking about paying your mortgage here. People rarely impulsively pay for a mortgage. Um, but but when you're at the checkout line at the grocery store and suddenly, you know, grabbing a, a chocolate bar or a magazine looks pretty good to you, um, that's because of that activation of that desire, that wanting versus liking I talked about. Um, and so so we end up pretty much putting away a lot of, you know, kind of small change on these these little purchases. Now, in, in more extreme cases, we can do that um, on, on larger purchases, you know, buying a, a set of golf clubs or, or something that, that might run in the hundreds or even the thousands of, of dollars. So understanding impulsivity and kind of giving yourself an opportunity to wait or think on it, um, you know, they sometimes call this the sleep on it effect um, to, to make a better decision, I think is in one small way um, a pretty easy thing for people to do in, in the pursuit of spending money more wisely. Okay. 
that makes sense, and that's actually good news because it's it, it, it's what you were talking about earlier. Your phrase about the appetite, uh, appetite in the brain, and just allowing a little time for that appetite to settle down, or figuratively speaking, go eat some almonds, go do something a little bit different, so you break the trance of I've got to have this purchase, and come back to it after you sleep on it, and say, huh, is it now that I'm using my full brain rather than just that hungry part of my brain? Absolutely. Is yeah. Uh, it's it's sort of like you know um, if for anyone that that has a a kid that's turned into an adult they turn eighteen and they come to you and they say hey I want to get a tattoo um, <laughs> then uh, you know the 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 first advice you you give maybe besides oh please don't get a tattoo depending on on whether you're okay with tattoos or not is if you want to get a tattoo you're going to get a tattoo but what you should do is think of the design you want and then wait one year and then get your tattoo and decide if you still want that. <laughs> Great idea. Yeah. That's a lo- now, that's, that's not just sleeping on it. That's a real pause button there. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you know, if, if we did something, you know, a, a, a sort of a psychological cousin to that with many of our purchases, I think in the long run, many of us would end up being happier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what it sounds like. I know that when I'm working with clients in my practice that there's just much of the work that we do is gaining access to our full uh, wisdom, our, make sure, making sure that, that the, the entire brain is active in this thing, not just the real grabby part of the brain. Um, so it's nice to know that, that the, uh, the research really supports the work that we're doing here in our, in our practices, both Anne and I. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. I, I will say the, the one other thing I think that is important, um, and I mentioned this early on, but I, I would like to go back to it because I think it's so important, is this idea of pro-social spending. Um, and, and I take a pretty wide view of what pro-social means, but it basically means – Using your money for the good of others, and that that doesn't necessarily just mean donating, you know, uh, money to the Red Cross or to some charity, something like that. Um, it could even be taking your children, your adult children, on vacation, um, something like that. It's someone who's related to you. Mm-hmm. So when you spend money on others, it really does seem to to pay off. Because ultimately, people really want to connect. One of our primary drivers as humans um, is to build relationships. We're very social creatures, and we want to feel a sense of, of contributing to others. When you, when you spend money in a way that, that benefits other people, whether you know them or not, it sort of reinforces this idea that the world is a good place, that there's generosity, that things are working well. It, it implicitly suggests that you're doing well. You're doing well enough that you have so many resources that you can share them. Okay. Um, so, so I think that, that you don't want to necessarily give all your money away. Of course, you yeah. still want to be able to pay your own mortgage. But, mm-hmm. um, but again, I think this is one of the, the best things you can do in terms of your happiness. Okay. That's great. Okay, we're going to t- uh, take a pause right now, and we'll be back after the break with our guest, Robert Biswas-Diener, and speaking more about happiness and money. If you'd like to join our conversation, we're going to be taking some calls. Our phone number, 866-472-5790. And, of course, you can email us, moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You have Money in Your Life.
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Anne Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Anne's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Money in Your Life with Brian Farr and Ann Hutchins. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Brian Farr with my co-host, Ann Hutchins, and our guest, Robert Bezwas-Diener. Today we're talking about money and happiness. It's a good overlap to be discussing. And uh, I wanted to come back. We have a caller on the line, but before we pick up with the caller, Robert, I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved in this topic of studying happiness? And specifically, the what was your thoughts around this, the connection with money? Because I know that that was an early focus for you in your, uh, in your professional career. Yeah, it's a, a great question, Brian. I, I certainly didn't uh, grow up to think that I was going to be a, a happiness researcher. You know, my, my friends in grade school wanted to be doctors and lawyers and librarians and things like that. I thought I was going to be um, a movie star, um, and I, <laughs> I did not go that way. Um, but the reason I got into happiness research is uh, largely because it's a family business. I come from a family of, of five psychologists. I'm the fifth. Um, and my father is one of the people who pioneered the study of happiness, who developed metrics for it, um, you know, uh, developed methods for assessing it. Um, and, and my particular corner of that field is in culture and happiness and money and happiness. Um, so, so I got into it um, so that it, largely I could collaborate with my father, who's, who's very fun to work with. Oh, that's great. That's very good. Okay, so let's take a uh, – we have a caller. This is uh, Tyler calling from Washington. Tyler, you have Hi. money in your life. Hi. I, Good um, morning. My, my question is a little bit about maybe an, an elephant in the room, and I apologize. I missed the beginning of the show, so maybe I missed some good context. But uh, I keep thinking that maybe happiness is, is very much outside of money, and I think of it in terms of when I was young. I worked in nonprofits. Uh, and didn't make a lot of money, 
and always kind of longed for more, but I had other things in my life like work-life balance and uh, some free time, and and it was a lot easier to carve out time for reflection and meditation and exercise and things like that, whereas now, you know, I've got the uh, corporate operations management job and I've got good money, but it's a lot harder to balance some of those other things. Is there anything that you found in your research that, that kind of ties the the money to things that are outside of the money. Tyler, that's an excellent question. Thank you for your call. And Robert, what are your thoughts on Tyler's question? I, I think Tyler's asking a wonderful question. Um, and, and it is having to do with, with that kind of fundamental understanding, is money associated with happiness? And I can tell you that that people often weigh in with different opinions. They say, well, you know, rich people could never be happy. You know, the money interferes with their happiness. Well, other people say, oh, it's poor people who could never be happy because they lack the security that, that money brings. And the truth is, rich people or poor people could be happy. Um, and for the very reason that, that Tyler suggests, which is money isn't everything. It turns out that money does make a difference to our happiness. That is, if you live in a country that has um, the things money can buy, like public parks, good police forces, nice roads, a decent education and healthcare system, you're more likely on average to be happy than if you grew up in a country that's highly corrupt, has crumbling roads, civil war. Um, so, so some of the things that money buys uh, does contribute to happiness, but as Tyler's suggesting, it is absolutely not the, the whole of the picture, and that relationships are very important to happiness, recreation is important to happiness, um, you know, health is, is important to happiness. Um, so, so we shouldn't focus on, on money as being the only explanatory factor, but money is a piece of the pie, certainly. Okay. That's very yeah. That's a uh, it does tie into what we were talking about earlier in the show. Anne. Yeah, Robert. I have actually two emails, but I'm just going to start with the one from uh, Monique in Phoenix. How do I keep concerns about money from holding me back on retiring early? Rationally, I know I have enough, but I worry about running out. Well, at the at the core of Monique's question, I think is this idea that um, that psychology and financial our financial state and our psychological state are sort of two different trains running on two different tracks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and no matter how much person a money ha- uh, how much money a, a person has, I don't think that that anyone says, "Aha, now I've got enough." I, I, yeah. I couldn't stand for a dollar more. I, I think I've topped out where money is concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you find this at, at people you know, who, who have millions of dollars socked away for retirement. You find it among people who are working at minimum wage jobs. Um, so, so part of what she's saying is I have these psychological concerns. And that's one of the things that money actually does buy us is a sense of, of psychological security. Um, so, so having a little bit of money, a nest egg, you know, a, a few months of salary, um, you know, socked away in case you lost your job, for example, is is helpful people to people. It's it's psychologically tonic. Um, so there's there's no amount of money that will solve Monique's worry. Um, 
you know, maybe if, if she had $100 million and she won it in the lottery. But even then, she would say, well, gosh, I don't know now if I can buy that, that giant building downtown that I wanted to buy. I still don't have enough. So, so we have to understand that, that worry is sort of going down a separate track than our, our actual money and that those two don't always align perfectly. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. The, uh, this other question relates back to what we were talking about before. It says, my spouse has an unrealistic idea of the relationship between our income and our spending. And she also believes that, quote unquote, you only live once. So you should enjoy things while you can. While she enjoys what she buys, it never seems enough. And meanwhile, her spending is eating away at me. I've tried talking with her, and we just argue, and nothing changes. What should I do? <laughs> it's, it's a great question. And the key word in there, I think, is the word relationship. Right. Um, he said, my spouse has you know, this kind of funny relationship with money. But the truth is, um, much of our money, our attitudes about saving and spending, occur within our own relationships, that is our social relationships, um, and, and both of you, uh, Anne and Brian, would know far better than I, that, um, that when you work with people around how are you going to invest and save and spend, um, you're often not just working with one person, but you're, you're more often than not working with a couple, and it's rare that people have 100% agreement about their values around money. We grew up in different families. We, we hear different messages about it. Some people believe you should save everything. Some people have this, you should only live once, you know, kind of um, attitude. And, and that's one of the sticking points for, for saving and spending is, is trying to see eye to eye and, and make concessions and, and compromise with, for example, a spouse. Well, exactly. And some of the work that I have d- been doing recently has been identifying your and, and owning your own money personality, because just as you have a social personality, you have a money personality and recognizing how y- you may play off your spouse or those in your family or even your kids is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I would I would. Yes, I, I don't know the money personality side of it, but I'm, you know, that makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. I would guess that your your social personality and your money personality are highly related. You know, are you an yeah. impulsive person? Well, then you're probably likely to be an impulsive spender. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, a- there's another question that comes to mind here, and it, and it was from an email a couple of weeks ago, and it's happiness over time. The email was was speaking about uh, somebody who was in a new – they'd been married I think it was like a year and a half or two years. And then Ann and I started talking about, well, what about at 10 years and what about at 30 years? And I'm wondering, is happiness – in working with this happiness topic, Robert, do you find – specifically around couples and, and, uh, and how they can work with each other, how do they adjust for the changes over time? What we're interested in at 25, we're not interested in really at 55 or 60 maybe. Sure. Well, I mean, in, in some sense, you know, if, if you're asking for marriage advice, um, <laughs> the, the, the idea is, you know, it's, it's good for, for people who are, who are couples to be able to sort of grow together. You know, you don't want one person to stagnate and the other person to grow um, or them to grow in different ways, um, right? You, you need a certain mm-hmm. amount of, of proximity to one another. Um, right. But I think beyond that, 
One of the things that happens over time, um, psychologically speaking, is adaptation. We're equipped with this wonderful ability to adjust to new circumstances. This is why we can take a new job, why we can marry someone new, why we can move to a new city, because it's not just completely overwhelming. We, we know that it'll be mildly stressful in the short term, but across the long term, we have the capability to, to adjust to these new circumstances. The downside of that is that we adjust to that new house, to that new car, and we start taking it for granted and we quit appreciating it. Um, and in that sense, things can see, seem boring to us or tired or that we cease to plumb happiness uh, from them. And, and one of the greatest examples of this, I think, is, is like purchasing a new pair of shoes where... Um, where you get a burst of excitement that day that you buy them, like, oh, these shoes are so cool. Um, but, you know, a, a week, two weeks later. Okay. So that was the, the piece that uh, how you can just get comfortable with the shoes, and then it's almost like they cease to exist. They just become something that's part of your day-to-day -day life. And I'm guessing that hungry part of your brain wants to go out and find something else that's new at that point. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's an interesting one in terms of the um, working in, in terms of a partnership, being able to the two terms, the adaptation and proximity. So in a couple, when it's around money and this topic of happiness is having conversations to come into alignment, what's important to you, what's exciting to you, and then figuring out ways to, to, to you know, obviously not everything's going to be alignment, but find some things that are in alignment and put some money, invest some of the discretionary income towards those activities. Yeah, that, yeah having absolutely. those discussions over time. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that those are that's not going to be a one-time discussion early in the relationship, but it needs to be renewed at you know various various times along. Yeah. Yeah, and part okay. of the question from our caller from the from the emailer was, my husband and I were in our first year of marriage and we're just figuring it out. So, what's your advice? And it sounds mm -hmm. like the what the three of us are saying are is our advice is communicate. Yeah. That, absolutely. I, I have a friend who is a couples therapist, and, and they have an adage that I really like. They say, there are problems you can solve and problems you can't in your marriage. And those fights that you continue to have over and over again, and, and money is one of those for many people, is a problem that you may not be able to solve. And people have this understanding that if only we just talk about this, you know, if we just process it, then we'll come to some final solution. But what my friend therapist would say is, oh, no, this is something that you continue to revisit, and that's how you manage it, that you continue talking about it for the rest of your marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah That makes sense, yeah. And do we have another email? We do. This is from Donna in Seattle. We have uh, – she says, Dr. B. Swastiner, as a psychologist, what are your thoughts on how we ourselves learn – or can teach our young to distinguish between merely satisfying wants and the genuine care of the self that undergirds happiness? Wow, what a, what a great question. Um, we're hitting everything, right? Marriage advice, yep. parenting advice. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really wonderful. It, it all um, relates to money, doesn't it? I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> I, I think as parents, one of the best things you can do is, is modeling. Um, yep. If if you're you know have the kids in tow when you're 
at the store, at the toy store, at the grocery store, and you're the type of person that's, that's you know, impulsively picking up a magazine or, you know, bending into to these sort of spur-of-the-moment wants quite a bit, then what you're modeling for them is, is you know, feeding those appetites um, is the way that, that we deal with them. Um, and I don't necessarily think that you need to be a, a, a stoic or, or monk-like and never, you know, having fun or, or indulging. Um, but, but I think just being sort of intentional about your purchases and understanding what your child is looking at when you're making purchases. So bringing them on board with, with your decision to make a purchase or not to make a purchase, sort of uh, explaining why you're making those decisions uh, could potentially be helpful. That makes sense. That's part of the thing about bringing – it's around conversation and communication. So as a parent, to just start modeling, oh, this is something I'm thinking about, and here's, here's what's going through my mind, and, uh, and, and, and that process of, of decision-making rather than just an impulse. Absolutely, and, I, and in fact, I, I think it even um, expands beyond um, simply the, the modeling, and that is having the conversation um, about – the meaning of money, about how, how important money is. This is something that, that all of us as adults uh, picked up at least tacitly from our own parents. Um, were our parents somewhat materialistic? Uh, did we stay at five-star hotels? Did we um, sort of get exposed to the finer things in life? Um, did we see our, our parents you know, sort of cutting corners or, or being very frugal? And that's how we ended up learning the value of money and, and having some of our particular leanings towards money. Um, and I think just really having those kind of open conversations, especially as your, your children get into their sort of um, tween and teen years and they start having the ability to, to begin managing a bit of their own money and their own spending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's not what, what I've found is it's also having the conversation uh, in transitions along the way. So giving kids a safe place to make mistakes, if you're giving them allowances, beginning to maybe increase the amount that you expect them to contribute by having an outside job or something, no matter how much wealth you have, but increase the connection of value and work and value work and money and decrease the allowance, the, the giving of money from the parents. Absolutely. I, I just had a wonderful opportunity to have sort of a, an amplified version of this. I, I just spoke with a number of people who were um, quite successful. That is, they had opened small and medium-sized businesses, and they'd been successful in their lives, and they ended up – these were – um, people who were basically aged 55 to 85, and they had, you know, in most cases, several million dollars from their companies, um, and they had retired, and they, they felt really good about what, what they had. But what they were worried about was their, their adult children, you know, these people who were, you know, in their 20s, 30s, um, in some cases, their early 40s. Um, and, and for the people who made the money, they felt good about it because really what they had focused on is hard work, on the products and services their companies supplied, on the meaning of, of the business, um, and kind of telling the story about how they had served people in the world or how they had worked hard. Um, and the money just happened to be um, sort of a side effect of all that hard work. But mm -hmm. for the heirs of these people, the people who stood to you know maybe get a, a half a million dollars in, in inheritance, 
um, they were a bit worried because they hadn't necessarily worked for the money, and so they thought it was uh, extremely important to talk to them that this isn't just a pile of money, but it represents hard work, service, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. To, and and so um, maybe you know we're needing to take a break here, but maybe we could pick up on that after we come back from the break, because it's such a the wealth transfer that's occurring. Uh, it doesn't have to be multi millions. It's even lesser amounts of money to have that conversation between parents and adult children is one of the key. Th- it comes up frequently in my office about how to do that. So let's come back to that after the break. Um, we will be back in just a few minutes um our phone number excuse me i was looking here for the phone number 866-472-5790 that's our phone number please give us a call we'd love to hear from you you have money in your life Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. The goal of financial coaching is to open up the conversation around money with your spouse, your children, or your extended family. Ann Hutchins works with individuals, families, and financial professionals to improve relationships with money. Her work with clients is confidential, honest, and fun. Visit Ann's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.abhutchins.com. That's abhutchins.com. Do you have financial goals for yourself? Do you want to be smart with money in all areas of your life? If you're ready to become more effective with your personal finances, then you might be ready to hire a financial coach. Since 2002, Brian Farr has helped hundreds of people improve their relationship with money. He's unbiased, honest, and approachable. If you'd like to learn more about financial coaching, visit Brian's website and schedule a free 15-minute consultation at www.brianhfarr.com. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you're listening to money in your life with brian farr and ann hutchins to reach our program today please call 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you may also send an email to moneyinyourliferadio at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. I'm Brian Farr with my co-host, Ann Hutchins, and our guest is Robert Bezos Diener. Today, we're talking about happiness and money, and just before the break, we were talking about this transition of the, the movement of wealth from parents to adult children. Um, Robert, did you want to pick up on that? Did you have any additional thoughts on, on that subject? Yeah, it's it's actually interesting. Uh, a number of financial service firms have collected data because they have um, 
they have obviously you know wealthy investors and and sometimes i don't mean wealthy in in the scale of you know many tens of millions but sometimes even just a, a few million or, or maybe even you know a hundred thousand dollars a couple hundred thousand dollars and um the people who who are those who made the money that is you know their business was successful or they were able to to sock away for a rainy day by being frugal they felt that money did not create problems for them. They felt that that, that money was, was actually uh, an extraordinary blessing. But when their children were surveyed, they were, were far more likely, significantly more likely, to think that that money was a problem. Um, and one of the reasons, certainly not the only reason, um, is that inheriting money um, – for many people can um, lead to a sense of guilt, like I didn't earn this money, I don't deserve the money, and yet I'm the beneficiary of the money. Um, so especially if I want to spend the money on something like a car or a speedboat, then then does that make me a materialist? Um, and, and I think that, that people who inherit money, and even, even modest amounts of money, um, can sometimes wrestle with this uh, a little bit. Okay. I know that I've seen that in my practice, and, and sometimes the conversation with the parent, for whatever reason, is just not available. And so what I've found is that they need to come to kind of what you're describing, that to, to, to an understanding of what their values are. A word I use is differentiation, that there's this money that's just come in, but I'm still the same person I was before. My partner and I, we're in the same relationship. How can we use this money as a tool rather than let the money define how we're going to use it? Um, it seems like that's a challenge for lots of folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think traditionally one of the ways that, that people dealt with this was just by establishing a trust, um, saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give this money to you because you're, you're too young to handle it. Um, and, and that may be a very reasonable thing to do, um, but I think that it doesn't necessarily take the place of, of the open communication and conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Let's see. We've covered so many different things. I do want to say before we before I forget that Robert's got a book called The Courage Quotient. He's got a number of articles and, and books out, but this is his recent book, The Courage Quotient. And um, I know it's available through through Amazon and also at Robert's website, positiveacorn.com. Robert, do you want to say a few words about your book? Um, sure. I, I think that courage is, is a really interesting topic, um, like, like happiness is, because I think that, that the ability to take risks um, and the ability to, to sort of face life's adversities uh, is important to living a, a good and full life. Courage doesn't always lead to happiness. Um, courage often um, leads you to uncomfortable situations like uh, sticking up for yourself against a bully, speaking out with an unpopular idea at a boardroom meeting, um, you know, advocating for your child. So, so the the behaviors associated with courage are sometimes a bit anxiety provoking. But I think that when you live sort of a, a full life um, rather than a fearful life, uh, it, it can often feel like the good life to you. So I, I think that the, the kind of the minor everyday risk-taking associated with courage um, it is important for, for a really healthy, good life. You know, it's really interesting to, to think about that in the context of what we're talking about because sometimes what I see with my clients, particularly those who have difficulty talking, like, adult children who have difficulty talking to their parents about money 
courage comes into play. Absolutely. Courage is a far more pedestrian concern than people think. I mean, our, our minds tend to jump to these stereotypical examples of, you know, soldiers in battle or, or emergency workers during a catastrophe. And, and obviously, there, there's an element of courage in, in both of those circumstances. But I think that, that for most people, courage is a, a really everyday concern. You know, if, for people who are afraid to fly, stepping on the airplane is an act of courage. Um, you know, for a kid who's intimidated at school, the, the act of, of stepping into the classroom is, is an act of ba- bravery. So courage isn't something that, that's, you know, reserved for elite soldiers. It, it's really something that, that all of us have a bit of history with. Mm-hmm. And I can see it coming, looping all the way back to the shopping situation, to be in the store with a young child who is pitching a fit. And to have the courage to say, no, that's not what we're going to do today. We're not going to purchase these six items for you. I think that requires courage in a store when you're standing there with your child. That's right. And I think one of the the interesting things about courage is um, often courage means uh, the ability simply to, to face an uncomfortable emotion. And more often than not, it's feeling self-conscious or afraid, anxious. Uh, and courage sort of means stepping through that, just facing it and saying, I, I can tolerate a bit of fear. I, it's going to be okay. Or I can tolerate everyone staring at me as my child you know, screams their head off in the store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just used a phrase, the courage to face an uncomfortable emotion. That's an internal experience where typically courage is the external. Like you say, the fireman going into the building, the, the uh, paramedic, you know, whatever that is. That's enormous courage. But you're saying there's an internal element to courage. The, in, the facing an uncomfortable emotion also requires courage. Absolutely. And, and I just saw this, interestingly enough, I, I have uh, in my personal life um, several family members who just hit adulthood, um, so they're, they're ages 18 through about 25, and they're just learning about things like um, setting up a retirement account or um, investing in the stock market. And I was so fascinated to hear from them when we described what the stock market is. And they said, wait, but there's risk in the stock market? You mean you could lose money as well as gain money? <laughs> and, and it just really um, was quite shocking to them. And that fear felt very, very uncomfortable to them. So, of course, you know, one of the things that Anne and Brian, both of you do, is, is talk to people and assess their, their proneness to risk or, or their ability to withstand risk or, or tolerate risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you know the one. Uh, just uh, I have one more email, quick email question. If we have time for it, I think we have time. Yes, we do. It says after the last market crash, I'm afraid to put my savings into stocks. The market's been going up and up, and I worry I miss the boat. I worry about losing my savings, but I also worry about inflation eating it away. Seems like whatever I do, I'm going to worry. How do I get out of this paralysis where I feel like I should be doing something, but I don't know what to do? Well, I'm certainly not going to give financial advice. Um, that, <laughs> that, that would be uh, outside the scope of, of my expertise. So I, I can't tell you if you've missed the boat or not, whether you should invest or, or not. Um, but in, I can, in the context of courage, though. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can speak to, to the internal experience, um, which is stress is a part of life. Um, and, and I think that, that our relationship with our own emotions and our own stress 
um, often occurs in our heads. Uh, and I don't mean to say that, that the person emailing or, or anyone else is, is fabricating it or making it up. But we do have some choice in, in how much we inflate it, how much we dwell on it, how much um, we, we allow it to, to curb or promote certain behaviors. Um, and, and the thing I, I quite like is just sort of noticing our emotions and saying, oh, yeah, I, I do feel worried about this or I do feel stressed out about this, but not necessarily being a slave to those emotions, rather noticing those emotions, questioning where they come from, questioning how accurate they are and wondering what you can do with them um, rather than letting them like an avalanche, you know, sweep you off the mountain and make you totally spin out of control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Brian and I talk a lot about uh, with our clients about their money story. And the bulk of the money story for a lot of people is about emotions around money. And so separating those emotions from the fact begins to let them notice those emotions when they come up against something like this. Say, oh, there you are again. Let's just mm-hmm. step aside. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll tell you a very quick story about this. In, in 10 seconds, I had a family member win the lottery, um, and, and they won you know, a, a modest amount. It wasn't millions. It was, I think, $30,000, um, and it took them five days to spend it. And oh, my gosh. Most, mostly, you know, they were so excited that they won this lottery, and, you know, they were so happy, and they went out and they bought essentially, you know, sort of jewelry and gifts for all their friends, and, and literally five days later, the $30,000 was gone. And, and you could just see, uh, you know, I, I got to kind of witness this from the outside. It was just a wave of emotion um, with, yeah. with sort of yeah. no logic or strategy behind it. Yeah. Robert, that's such a perfect story. We're going we're gonna to need to wrap up here. But tying back to these this purchasing decisions and how we, get, um, how we can have long-term happiness with the discretionary money we have, with the way we spend our money, this is a perfect example is we need to slow down. That money landed in their life like uh, it just dropped in their life and, and they were swept up in emotion. I just can't even – I can imagine what that felt like. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Robert, we need to wrap up. Um, thank you very much for joining us. I do want to mention again, Robert's book is called The Courage Quotient, and his um, website is Positive Acorn. I love that image, the acorn growing into the oak tree, and this is positiveacorn.com. So feel free, please uh, check out Robert's work. We really appreciate you being on our show today, Robert. This has been a fascinating conversation. Oh, yeah, it's been so my much. pleasure to be here. Thank you both so much. Okay, thank you. So next week, we're going to shift gears. We are welcoming journalist and former financial columnist, Helene Olin. Helene goes behind the curtain of the personal finance industry to expose the myths, contradictions, and outright lies that have been per- perpetuated. Join us to discuss her book, Pound Foolish, The Dark Side of the Personal Finance industry. Until then, I'm Brian Farr. And I'm Ann Hutchins. Let's keep this conversation going because you have money in your life. Thank you for making money in your life part of your financial plan this week. Please join your hosts, Ann Hutchins and Brian Farr, again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.